Haskell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello and welcome to another of our special podcasts, this time uh, from Northern Ireland. I'm in Belfast for the Askell Northern Ireland Annual Conference. I have to say it's been fantastic. Northern Ireland has its fair share of issues that are being tackled. Funding, of course, like, like everybody. And on top of that, very distinctively, very problematically, a kind of political gridlock, which makes it very difficult for anything to get done, get decided. So in the midst of that, we might have expected a rather bleak conference. It, it wasn't. It was uh, an exceptionally good conference. Where I, I received a wonderful welcome and a whole series of fascinating insights into what's it like to work in Northern Ireland. And there were some pretty tough questions there for the permanent secretary, who is kind of trying to keep the show on the road there in the absence of any elected officials. But there was also a lot of hope and a lot of optimism and a great celebration that Northern Ireland academically really sets the pace uh, for the UK. But it focuses hugely on social mobility and what do we do to narrow the gaps with those students who are not achieving very well. And then has got a spotlight on it internationally because there's so much good practice and uh, uh, people from overseas come to have a look at the work they're doing on pedagogy. So there was lots going on and I, I loved my visit there and look forward to, to going back in January when I'm going to do a tour of a number of schools over there. So in the podcast, you're going to hear from Deirdre Gillespie. She is a head teacher. She's also the vice president of Askell Northern Ireland. She's going to become president. She talks about her school, gives a flavour of what it's like to work in Northern Ireland and talks about her curriculum in particular, a very balanced curriculum, and, uh, and then talks about her priorities when she becomes president in January. Then you listen to David Burnett, another head teacher. He talks about what he's doing at his school in terms of flexible working, and it's very ambitious and very enlightened and, and really interesting. Then what you've got is Maud Perry. She is also a head teacher in uh, Northern Ireland, but she worked previously, until last year in fact, in Surrey. And so she's able to give a real insight into the differences in the two systems there. Then a couple of people who were speakers at the conference, Dawson Stelfox, a mountaineer. In fact, he led the team from Ireland who uh, first climbed Everest and he talks a little bit about that and why mountaineering is so important to him. And then Andy Buck who was the keynote speaker. Uh, many of you will know Andy Buck from Leadership Matters and he reflects on a number of things but in particular as somebody who was there right at the beginning of the teaching schools program he talks about what he's seen of the program developing and what the priorities for school and college leaders should now be. So this is our special podcast from Northern Ireland Really hope you enjoy it. Okay, my name is Deirdre Gillespie. I'm the principal of St Mary's Grammar School in Mackerfeld, and I'm currently the president for Askell Northern Ireland. From the outside, we've got a very complicated system of education, kind of going lots of different bits to it. Can you, uh, as someone who was uh, went to school in Belfast, so you really yeah. know the system, can you just describe it to us? Um, yeah, it is. It's a system where there's different levels of um, participation within different s- sectors, um, and it is quite complicated. We have five different sectors here in Northern Ireland. We have a selective and a non-selective system, um, and it, it can be confusing from the outside to see how that's an effective way of running an education system, which is which is fit for purpose and meets the needs of all our learners. So, tell us a bit about your school. Well, my school is a selective grammar school. Um, it, it's in South Derry, about 40 minutes from Belfast. I have over 1,100 pupils and over 75 staff, teaching staff. Um, a very high achieving school. Last year, 100% 7A started to C, including English and Maths. 97% 7A started B, including English and Maths. So very, very high achieving. About 95% will go off into their first choice of higher education. Um, so in all accounts, successfully academically, but it's much more than that um, because we're 
we, we d- try to develop the whole person. So there's a very, very thriving um, drama, music, creative arts aspect to the school, and we would be renowned for our sporting ability. We won, there's a, we are particularly a Gaelic um, sporting school, and um, this year a big achievement was to win what's called the McCrory Cup, which is a cherished prize amongst Gaelic football, and we won it for the first time this year, so I'm very proud of that. Oh, I can tell you're <laughs> proud of that, but actually that links with your own experience of school, doesn't it? Tell Absolutely. us about that. Yeah, well, I, I could have gone to the, the local grammar school, but chose to go to a comprehensive, the biggest comprehensive school at that time, a single-sex comprehensive school in Europe, and I chose to go there because of netball, um, and I wasn't taking no from an answer, despite my father and mother's <laughs> uh, disappointment, I think, at one point. I wanted to go to um, St. Louis's um, to play netball, and I did that, and I ended up playing netball for Northern Ireland as a result of that, that opportunity, so I'm very proud. Yeah, wonderful. And so you're Vice President uh, of Askell here in Northern Ireland. You're going to be President. I am. Uh, just tell us what that's going to entail. Um, well, for me, it's, it's three levels. Um, it's going to be there to help and uh, represent members um, along with our regional officer, uh, help them in any concerns or issues that they may have. It's, it's also there to, to work collaboratively with all the stakeholders in Northern Ireland. And I suppose very importantly is to provide opportunities for professional development for, for our members. We started uh, this morning with a conversation with the Permanent Secretary uh, and what struck me is one of the great opportunities that you get in a presidential role is connecting with people who are right at the top. How, how did that feel for you? It was. I enjoyed it. Um, I used to work as an inspector within the Education Training Inspector, and I worked across 14 to 19. And I used to give um, advice to ministers, um, both for um, Department of Education and what was then called the Department of Employment and Learning. So that today was kind of nearly bringing me back to my roots, because as a principal, you don't really get those opportunities. But I'm hoping that through my role with Askell um, in the coming year, that I'll be able to develop those links much, much greater. Okay, and last, last question. Um, l- lots of what we've been hearing this morning about funding issues and uh, all, all, you know, lots, lots of familiar issues going on here, but what appears to be different is the status of teachers here and also the fact you can recruit teachers. Is that the case at your school? Uh, absolutely, um, without a shadow of a doubt. Last year I actually had uh, recruited 13 teachers and that was without any issue at all and I suppose the average number applying for each post would have been in excess of about 14. Thanks for talking to us. Not at all, thank you. So David Burnett, I'm the headmaster at the Royal School in Dungannon. Uh, so A, where is Dungannon and B, what's the school like? <laughs> it's in County Tyrone in Northern Ireland and it's a, an old established school, 400 years old. Uh, in Northern Ireland terms it's known as a voluntary grammar school, which means it has a great deal of autonomy and independence. Uh, we're a day school and boarding, so we're you know quite a traditional setup in many ways, but we try to look forward. And you live there on site, so you've got the head, what is, it, is it called the headmaster's house headmaster's or something like that? House, yeah. yeah, and so what, what's that like? Because from, from someone who's never done that, I assume that that could feel a bit claustrophobic sometimes. Yeah, can do on occasion, but it can also be you know, a real pleasure, a real joy. Uh, lots of kids about all the time, so always lots of you know, good things happening, good fun. And of course they do go home sometimes as well, so you, <laughs> yeah. you do end up uh, having uh, the run of the Response. place in very large grounds and you know, gr- great uh, space for your own kids to cycle about and all of that. Yeah. Um, now, flexible working is something we've been ch- challenged to think more creatively about and just talking to you last night, that's something which you appear to have in your bloodstream. So tell us about how flexible working might, might happen at your school. Yeah, so we have quite a number of people, uh, about 11 people who are uh, on some sort of flexible 
uh, working scheme. Uh, that's a mixture of career breaks, uh, job shares, temporary variations, and indeed in a number of cases, permanent changes to contracts because it suited uh, those individuals and it suited us as a school. And the secret to that is really the governor's buy-in. So we, we have a, a really committed team of governors who feel very strongly that uh, the, the teaching staff give a lot to the school and therefore th that has to be reciprocated and it has to be a two-way street and therefore when people ask for these sorts of things we try our very very best to accommodate it almost always we can and on the occasions when we can't it's carefully explained to that person why and they understand that it, although it may not happen on that particular moment we may be able to come back to it if the circumstance changes we're trying our best to make it happen and I guess you get great kind of loyalty and uh, kind of buy into the culture from, from teachers who were yeah. you know, gr grateful for that more yeah. flexible attitude. Absolutely, and we've seen that just recently where we, we were struggling to uh, uh, come up with a maternity cover and s several of our staff who were on uh, the flexible uh, contracts uh, who, who therefore had a, a day or a half a day or something like that to spare uh, came forward and said, well, look, we could fill in. It's six months. We don't mind. Uh, it'll be good for the kids, good for the school. We don't mind doing it. I mean, does it inevitably involve some split classes? And it does. Uh, it, it, it does. And so, you know, what, do, do you not get parents saying, oh, we don't want split classes, or your timetable is saying this is disastrous? No, I think the timetable are uh, quite happy, a bit more flexibility. Um, par parents, not really an issue. I think sometimes the staff themselves are a little bit nervous that split classes will make things more difficult and the impact that will have. Um, but really the secret's in the planning, so uh, how they divvy up the various topics, assessments and so on, getting that done early, so getting that planned out for the term, and then it's just a matter of keeping in contact a little bit. And what they've begun to realise, of course, is it gives them flexibility as well. So if I'm taking a trip away one day and I can't get a certain topic taught, then my colleague, maybe, can help fill that in a little bit. So it swings and roundabouts. It doesn't always go the way you want, but with goodwill and the, the staff knowing each other, working together uh, closely in that kind of planning, uh, focused way, you, you can make it work. And, and the, ov the overall merit of the process is worth those little inconveniences because they're only occasional and they're, they're incidental and momentary. You know, they're the ephemera yes. of, of the teaching week. Uh, they come and they go, but they're not insurmountable. David, thank you very much. Not at all. Oh, my name is Maud Perry and I'm principal of Down High School in Downpatrick, which is a grammar school in Northern Ireland. Whereabouts is it? From from we're here in Belfast. Which way would we travel? Oh, um, you travel south probably for about forty minutes or so. Wow. So it's a, a rural school. Uh, now, before you worked in Northern Ireland, you worked in on the mainland, uh, if I remember correctly, in Surrey. So. Uh, tell us where you used to work. Oh, I used to work in quite a large comprehensive in Surrey, um, a school in Guildford called George Abbott School, oh, no. with about 2,000 pupils on roll and about 120 staff. And how long have you been working in Northern Ireland? Oh, just over a year. Okay, so you're in a good position to kind of show us what some of the differences are. So just reflect on, on how does it feel different working in a school in Northern Ireland? Mm. Well, it really is very significantly different. And I think before I moved, I hadn't anticipated um, the great differences within the systems. Um, I started to do research um, prior to being called for interview for the post. And then I started to realise the difference in terminology, the difference in the systems, um, and the way uh, the way the whole system works. 
So give, give, give us some examples. So uh, is it different for teachers over here? I, mean, I know that you, there isn't the same problem of supply, but is being a teacher different, do you think, over here? I think in both systems, um, and, and as I say, I'm lucky that I worked in a, a very high-achieving comprehensive in, in Surrey, and, and now I'm working in a very high-achieving school here. And the pressures are similar in terms of like the, the outcomes for pupils, the focus on quality teaching in the classroom, and, and really ensuring that, that best practice is shared. Uh, some of the, I suppose, the most significant thing that I would notice in terms of the differences um, is the there's a high level of accountability um, in England um, really focused around um, I think what might have been referred to in today's conference as weighing the pig in terms of lesson observations and and, and using that as a measure um, whereas in, in Northern Ireland teachers are I think more autonomous uh, and uh, last question um, we've had a conference today where we've talked quite a lot about some of the problems finances and so on and so forth but also a lot of the opportunities here. I mean, what's your mood as you finish the conference? What struck you today? I feel really positive, um, positive about the impact that teachers can have in the classroom on the life chances of young people, positive about the leadership within schools, the quality of leadership um, here in Northern Ireland and, and in England, and, and I feel really positive about, about moving forward um, with the team and putting into action what we focused on here today. It's really useful just to have a day to reflect on, on your style and the, and the impact that that can have. Maud Perry, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Dawson Stalfox, uh, I'm a conservation architect, but talking today as a mountaineer. So tell us about mountaineering. How, how did you get into that? Uh, well, I started very young. I started um, walking with my parents and grandparents, um, got involved at school, um, mountaineering club at school, uh, started uh, into university mountaineering club and just started rock climbing, started going to the Alps, started going to Scotland, got the bug and kept going. And had a very significant achievement, I think it would be fair to say. Uh, yes, <laughs> I think. Well, I was, I was the first person from Ireland to climb Everest uh, back in 1993, so it's uh, nearly 25 years ago now. Um, but um, being in Ireland, you're, you can lay claim to dual nationality, so I, I laid claim to my British nationality to claim the first ascent of the North Ridge of Everest as well, which was the uh, the ridge that Mallory and Irvine disappeared on in 1924. So that's um, so it was a, it was a. It was, it was a pretty significant um, uh, trip and, of course, a lot of luck involved in it, but, uh, you know, it was our first time to Everest and we got up the first time, so that was pretty good. And what's, what's mountaineering taught you about your, yourself? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I couldn't think of myself now without of my experiences in mountaineering because I've been climbing so long. So a whole range of things. I mean, it, it, the whole thing about decision-making, about judgments, about risk assessment, about... Um, uh, you know, balancing your desires and enthusiasms with reality, um, you know, that, but most importantly, the value of having a, a target, having a goal, having something you really want to do. And then, you know, sometimes you fail, sometimes you don't, sometimes you, you have to modify what those ambitions are. But the value of having having that, and that, that to me is applies to my working life, my home life, family life, everything, you know, having a, having a direction, having a goal. And then modifying it in the circumstances, you know, that a lot of that is my learning and my sort of experiences come through mountaineering. I'm Andy Buck and I'm the managing director of Leadership Matters and Hashtag Honk. <laughs> yes. yes, every time you say honk, I want to. <laughs> yes. Okay. So give us a flavour of what you've been talking about this morning. Underpinning what I've been talking about is habit. 
habit of leaders, great habits for teachers and great habits for children. And I guess thinking about how do we change those? Um, fundamental thing. Um, and I guess the big answer to that is one at a time. Yes. Try and get one thing. Yeah, one thing. So leaders focusing on one thing. I mean, you were talking in your session about teachers and departments doing that. Uh, I think the same applies to us as leaders. You know, if you want to change the habit of developing, say, for example, the habit of asking first in any conversation, and, you know, I talked to them a bit about why I thought that, you know, why, why that's a good habit to have, um, to empower others to come up with their own solutions. Or if you are giving advice or taking a job off someone, you're going to probably do it better as a result. But actually, you have to train yourself to do that because sort of culturally we're programmed to, like, we're a leader. We should solve other people's problems and just tell them what to do. That's our natural default habit, which may not be the best habit, I guess I was arguing. You were ahead for 12 years? 13. 13 yeah. years. Um, and now you're heavily involved in coaching middle leaders and senior leaders and yeah. so on. When you look back to your own headship, what have you learnt about what you might have done differently? Oh, so much. Uh, I think, you know, and I don't blame myself for this, but you are so in the delivery moment most of the time. Um, Steve Radcliffe, in his brilliant book, Future Engaged Deliver, kind of just reminds you that all three of those parts are important. Uh, taking time to step back, you know, be on the, the balcony, not the dance floor, and think about the future is really important. Um, and I didn't do that enough as a head, as a team, or as a school, or as an individual. Um, and then thinking consciously about how do I engage and how do I manage change processes? I was so passionate and fired up about what I wanted to do. I just wanted stuff to have happened yesterday. And I didn't do what lots of schools don't do, which is take time to create, as Cotter would say, create the climate for learning. I wouldn't have been able to have a conversation like the one I'm having you now, talking about the people and the theories and the models, because I just didn't have them. <laughs> Even though I'd done LPSH and various other things, I, was, I mean, I was pre-MPQH, which shows how old I was or how young I was when I became a head. Uh, but, but nonetheless, I, I think um, I was all delivery, not enough future, not enough about engagement and getting buy-in and, and properly thinking through how I did change. I would do that so differently now. When you stepped out of Hedgeship, you were involved in developing the thinking and then the practice of the teaching skills. Yeah. Just, and now you're working with a number of teaching schools, so you see how they're gaining a maturity in the system. Mm. What, what are your reflections on teaching schools as they were initially conceptualised, and is that what you're now seeing in them? So George Berwick, who came up with the idea originally and kind of gifted it, if you like, to the National College, I felt like the, custo the custodian of the concept of, uh, you know, great schools not being... I mean, we'd failed twice with leading-edge schools and beacon-edge schools, uh, uh, beacon schools, where, you know, it was like, come and see what we're doing and do it like us. We know this is what you need to do, which was never going to work. So I remember Steve Mumby saying to me, we, this is our last chance to do this, and I think he was absolutely right. So it was, it was set up very differently, and, and uh, you know, that was George's vision for it too, and so getting it in the white paper was crucial it came up all the way through that first white paper that this government uh, put in place uh, and then getting it established was important the vision was always about it being collaborative around the things that you know teacher training continuing professional development leadership development succession planning research based and some active research going on but it being about not the one school or the one leader leading it all but distributing the leadership within the teaching school so playing to different schools strengths and so on um, and also it was about a teaching school alliance where that was shared within the schools. 
we also had the concept which is really interesting and in some places I'm very excited to see this happening now which was, which was that what we wanted in the longer term as the system matured was for a teaching school alliance to team up with others in its area to create what, what, what I named in the, in the original prospectus as networks of teaching schools in areas or regions and you know so for example Forest Way which is a special school in Leicestershire they, they are leading the teaching schools in that part of the world to work collaboratively not just within their alliances but the alliances together and they're starting to specialise much much more so that it's not about being competitive it's about working out what are we really good at what's the niche that a wider area um, so in a sense you know uh, you know and it doesn't matter where the schools come from you know if they're if they're multi-academy trust schools or whatever it, it you know hopefully it's colorblind in that sense it's just about helping the children of our area do better like like what underpinned london challenge which of course where the teaching school idea came from in the first place and in some parts of the country i'm really inspired with what i see happening um, then i see other teaching schools who i think you know, sort of taking the money and not doing very much. Um, although I don't see many of those, if I'm if, I, if I'm honest, and it's not very much money either, uh, which was always deliberate, even even in the early days. Um, so I'm optimistic that teaching schools are not the on, only solution. Clearly, there's lots of solutions out there, but I think they're an important bit of glue in the mm. system at the moment. Yeah. Finally, we're here in uh, Northern Ireland, uh, and we've both of us, I think, from from the outside, listened to some of the strengths, some of the weaknesses, some of the issues leaders are uh, are uh, dealing with. Um, what impressions will you go away with overall? So like any time when I work in a room with a bunch of leaders, I go away inspired because you're just working with people who care about making a difference for young people and that's why I do what I do and that's always humbling. Um, I also go away with, I think they know quite well over here how to keep their teachers and how to uh, focus on teaching as an important thing and the academic uh, subject knowledge and, and so on that, that I think is really important that we, we've sort of lost our way a bit with, with things like the national strategy. Um, so... You know that I think is a is a real strength, and you know the British Council are, are bringing people over here to show them what is going on in Northern Ireland, which is fantastic. But when it comes to leading in uncertain times, which is a uh, you know a kind of phrase used in leadership circles, goodness me, are they up against it here? Because not only have you got you know all the stuff around, there's no assembly, there's no executive, there's no one to make decisions. Um, we're brilliant that the Permsec was here all morning. Uh, I thought that set, spoke volumes because actually the actions speak louder than words. In, in that, well, greatly came at all, but that they stayed all morning was yeah. fa fantastic. Um, so there's some good people in government here, but they're up against it, and so are the schools because you know the the need to plan and so on is is tricky. But I think they're pretty resilient. Um, I think you have to be to work in Northern Ireland in this context, and and they're getting on with it, and they're here today to share what they what they care about what they're passionate about and sort of recharge the batteries and I think you know like like any ASCO event I go to that's what happens you go away feeling a little bit better about the future than you did when you came which is part of what a great professional association I'm proud to be a member of for 32 years does <laughs> Andy Buck thank you very much the ASCO Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton 